0: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Content Confessions. As always, Hershey Stains A15, aka Stone Samurai, joined by my brother Steve, aka Stu. Stu, how's it going? Hey Hersh, I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just, you know, getting attacked by snakes and spiders and all that fun stuff. Um, today's episode, we're gonna be talking about Haiti. Um this is a bit of a wrap-up episode on our Latin American slash Caribbean series.
1: It's our um, penultimate episode. It's the the la- It's the second before last. It, we're leading up to the wrap-up next week, so this kind of ties into it.
0: Correct, and it's only it, it's a bit poetic um, in a way that we are going to be uh, ending with uh, with Haiti kind of considering that um, Haiti is somewhat of the beginning of the story that we've been telling so far. Um, Now, with that introduction, I'll pass it along to my brother in case there's anything that he wanted to say before we get started or if he wanted to present the table.
1: Yeah, just a little bit of a reason why we're finishing up with Haiti as our choice here in our Latin American series of either overviews or deep dives. This is going to be more of an overview on the island's Um, Or the country's history overall, it's part of an island. It's not the entire island, I probably should have phrased that better. Uh, But we started with Haiti, or excuse me, we're ending with Haiti here, because in the beginning, I was kind of thinking Haiti doesn't necessarily fit in with the Latin American view that we're doing. It's nominally part of the country, but it almost has a different history with the fact that it's mainly a French colonial kind of experience as opposed to a strictly Spanish one, like we had talked about with most of our other places besides Brazil, which had the Portuguese thing going on. But again, it's a it's related language, you know, Portuguese and Spanish. So you have a very similar culture based on language, even if you, you didn't have the exact same language. Um, my overall point being that I was wrong, and I'm kind of glad that we actually did end with Haiti not for the reason I thought of though, but because it does echo a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about throughout this entire series, even if its uh, details aren't exactly the same, or if it does stand out for its own reasons and its own uniqueness. Um, Part of what I wanna bring to our attention here is, currently Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, If you look at the statistics on life expectancy, healthcare, education, um, employment, just overall poverty levels and that kind of thing. It pretty much ranks in the bottom tier of any of those, of those statistics as, or as, as far as how those statistics are, are drawn up and interpreted. I'll leave that up to you. But just to get an idea, you know, it's pretty much seen as, as a pretty unstable, not necessarily dangerous crime-wise, but dangerous for other reasons because of, like, natural disasters, that kind of thing. And part of what we're talking about and what we've been talking about this entire series is why is that? And I think Haiti fits the mold that we've been talking about, Hirsch, where you had mentioned it in our discussion here shortly. Did you want to put it into your own words that you had kind of used in our discussion?
0: Um uh, I can save that for a little bit later or or put a put a nip on that for now. That's fine.
1: Well, no, I was just saying that like we, we can't think of these countries as backwards, you know, people who who are idiots who don't know how to run anything. Like there are reasons behind why things are the way they are. That's all I wanted to say.
0: Yeah, um, and and just uh, to further put my point, I wasn't sure exactly if you you wanted uh, me me to go too into it, but I'll just say that um, overall, I think that whenever it's a nation, whether it be Haiti or Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, um, there's always this idea or this sentiment of, you know, well, Things have gotten to the point they are because they're either too stupid or they're not financially uh, responsible enough or they just don't have uh, the understanding of democracy, as a lot of Western culture likes to try to put out. Um, And instead, with this with the series and specifically this episode, we're going to see why for Haiti, uh, why they have continued to be. i the bottom of the list when it comes to overall strength, whether it be economically, politically, etc.
1: Absolutely. I, I just wanted to give you a chance to because it was kind of your idea. I didn't want to steal your thunder there. That was all. No, no,
0: you're fine. You're fine.
1: And then, yeah, the reason why I think it is important that we did touch on Haiti is it does have a, a, a tie into what we've been talking about with these patterns, whether it's class and racial hierarchies whether it's um, foreign interference or just even outright aggression by foreign entities. um, A lot of that kind of stuff's going to fit in. You're also going to see a lot of political unrest, a lot of um, instability. You don't really get the liberal versus conservative stuff going on as much because it's almost too chaotic the entire time to have that kind of calm down war. If that makes any sense, Hirsch, to what we'd seen in Latin America, you know, where a lot of the time it's these civil wars that break out between the liberals and conservatives that eventually incorporate more right-wing and more (laughs) left-wing elements as they go on (coughs) excuse me sorry about that you're fine but i I think as we lead into it um people are going to be surprised maybe by by some of the um similarities that that it had to our experience in the past episodes and i was taken back by that too i just want to make sure we highlighted that and also and i mean oh i'm sorry go ahead no, and I was going to say, and also to just keep in mind that question I had mentioned of, of why is Haiti the poorest country in our hemisphere? Like, there is that is that something that we can understand and, and something that we can explain?
0: Yes. And, you know, the, the one thing I'll say before we get into it uh, a little bit uh, deeper is the The overall comparison between the other countries that we've covered in this series is that normally, whether it was in Mexico or whether it was in any of these South American uh, nations, a lot of times you would see um, after an independence movement, after a revolution, you would see a balance of power. And as my brother said, there was kind of these slow burning escalations where different groups of different sides were able to accumulate some sort of power, whether it was through labor, whether it was through uh, property ownership, whether it was through business dealings with the United States or any other sort of uh, Western uh, Western power at that time. But in this case, you never really saw that. And ultimately, whether it was uh, independence movements or or a revolution, uh, it continued and only furthered the disparity that unfortunately is a common theme where the people who have the least and have the
1: uh, not as much voice are the ones who had to ultimately pay the larger price. Well, and that tends to be the overall thing that we always see, right? Hirsch is the unfortunate thing that it tends to be the people who are the most uh, vulnerable to, to everyday life who end up paying the price in these situations. And I don't think Haiti is an exception, just like the rest of the countries that we've talked about, the rest of the periods that we've talked about. Um, it's the everyday people who end up suffering and the people that I want to keep in mind when we're talking about all these big names of history, when we're talking about these leaders, these revolutionaries, <clears throat> excuse me, these ideas. Keep in mind the people who usually just make up a statistic and will never really know their part of the story. And I do appreciate subaltern history or basically history from the, from the bottom and looking at everyday people. I I am hopeful that in the future we'll be able to do a little bit more of that. Um, But with this series specifically, we've been trying to do more of overviews and more of understanding like the broad history. So I do think to keep in mind those everyday people is important at the same time though.
0: For sure. Cause I mean, I think, I think ultimately um, the goal for both of us is to, Establish more of a notion of history being a lot more than battlefields and generals, um, because unfortunately, the the common misconception is anybody who is into history, just like World War Two and the idea of dead bodies. Right. When in actuality, I think that history uh, if truly examined through either an unbiased eye or through the eye of someone who understands, uh, you know, things like empathy and everything like that. Um, history cool. can be a little bit more, uh, more of a story and something that we can use and apply to our everyday life.
1: No, absolutely. And I think it's more than just presidents and leaders too, in addition to being more than just generals and, and battles, you know? And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the history that gets left behind, obviously, is about, you know, the quote, unquote, important people. And so that is one of the unfortunate things about sources and about just not speaking a certain language or that kind of thing where I can't go to a French source from Haiti and completely understand it. And that gets to my last point that I'll make before we get into everything proper is there's a lot of French names, a lot of French pronunciation. I took French in eighth grade. The only reason I passed is because I copied off of one of the people next to me. <laughs> so, so I apologize about any mispronunciations. Um, we're going to do our best Especially if it's one of those things where I've only seen it in print, I'm probably going to mispronounce it. I will try to remember my pronunciation rules when it comes to French. Like, I know, you know, the consonant at the end is silent after a vowel, that kind of stuff. But forgive me ahead of time. Yeah, well, you're a lot better equipped than me already, so I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Well, you got duvier, correct. So, like, that's a start, right? It's not Duvillier.
0: Yeah, no, I at least got that much
1: yeah but like you're you're forgiven if you've only seen stuff in in print or if you see like the name colbert that looks like colbert you know like that's the kind of stuff that i'm talking about so yeah we'll try to do our best and yeah i know hirsch as we start along here with the early colonization history we don't want to necessarily repeat everything that we've talked about over and over again but that's where we're going to start obviously um Prehistory stuff, there's only so many sources that you can get on the Taino people and the other people that we talked about, I think maybe back in our first episode. If I'm not mistaken, Hirsch, like we talked about, we talked about, uh, you know, the prehistory stuff. We talked about Columbus and the early Spanish voyages. Haiti is part of Hispaniola, so this is the original landing place of Columbus, of the Spanish and of all that kind of stuff that we talked about in the early episodes, the encomienda system, um, the horrible treatment of the indigenous people, basically almost wiping out that population over time. I think we talked about with the Taino specifically, they were down to like percentages compared to what they used to be by the time the Spanish moved on to the, to the uh, Central and South American mainland. And that's part of this history. And go back, listen to that episode to refresh yourself if you haven't. I don't want to spend too much time on that, Hirsch, besides, you know, maybe a couple of broad strokes here or there, just because we have talked about it before and there's a lot to cover overall.
0: Yeah, I mean, if anything, honestly, I think it would be more appropriate to uh, to start once uh, French control starts taking place. Just because, as you had mentioned, whether it was the very first episode that we'd done on this series or the following episodes uh that that came after it i think we well established what happened with the indigenous people of Hispaniola as well as the rest of the caribbean so i think i think that's perfectly fine
1: no exactly and basically just keep in mind the spanish are more focused on mining on some some productivity but they're they work the indigenous peoples basically either to death or aren't able to keep them working so they bring in african slaves what ends up happening, um, you have, I think, control pretty much of the, for the Spanish until around 1620, 1625, when the French start taking control. You have French Buccaneers who are basically uh, French pirates who are operating against certain Spanish territories or in certain Spanish territories that end up taking over the western part of Hispaniola. They recognize The Spanish recognized French control in 1625 where you have Saint Dominique as the French part of Hispaniola versus Santo Domingo, which is the Spanish colony on Hispaniola. And so that's the the official split where we'll kind of take our starting point here. The French um, have a different approach to what they wanna do on the plantation. They go about creating sugar, coffee, indigo, other plantations where you need a large workforce because of the harsh environment that's going on, where you have a lot of yellow fever, you have a lot of tropical diseases, you have a lot of overturn and dangerous work and people who are basically being either worked to death or put in dangerous situations. So you have a lot of overturn of the slave community, where you have to bring in a, a fr- fresh slave population almost constantly, but you also have to have a large slave population to get all this work done. And that's where we see come into effect where the French in 1685 realized they have to have more control over slavery. They want to have more control over the relationship between master and slave, whether that comes to procreation or just control um, in general and work. And Hirsch, I know that Code Noir was something that you were able to look into a little bit, maybe for a different trend that it also showed in, in French society.
0: Well, it was definitely very interesting um, just looking at it um, from the aspect of comparing it to chattel slavery, which is something I think that uh, more Americans are well aware of. Um, and and I, just to kind of quickly give a little bit of context to have the understanding of why things like the Code Noir are also known as uh, Code Black or why chattel slavery became a thing is slavery is a lot more complicated than just getting a group of people from Africa, putting them on a ship and sending them over here. Uh, There's a lot of control, there's a lot of psychological warfare that takes place. And it was something that most developing, most developed nations at that point rather, excuse me, um, had become aware of in the subjugation of its people. It's very hard to be able to rule over people and to subjugate them if they have any chance of hope, if they have any i um, any proper awareness of identity as well as culture. And so you start seeing a lot of these uh, ideas start getting put into place with different codes and restrictions that were put on this slave population, specifically, um, which we're going to talk about with Code Noir.
1: Well, and what's funny too is like as a, Legal precedent in France is back in the 1300s, uh, Louis X had actually abolished slavery and given rights to some of the serfs that were working in feudalism and that kind of thing. So you almost had a precedent in, in French society for this abolition. And since there weren't any slaves allowed in France, like mainland France, like the metropolitan area, as they call it, the area away from the colonies, they, they needed a specific legal code in order to deal with the stuff that was going on in their colonial holdings. And so basically, they, they come up with these terms where there's going to be more control over how slaves are able to operate, how masters are supposed to um, take care of their slaves, about punishments, about um, consequences for either helping somebody escape, or even about, um, you know, if a master falsely accuses a slave, like, you know, there's punishment supposedly for that. And there was also restrictions on free people of color. Cause keep in mind, this is almost, you know, 200 years after after slaves were introduced into um, Hispaniola. So there is a free people of color population that also is getting restricted in how they're able to operate too.
0: Well, and, and I just wanna quickly add because you had, you had said the word supposedly uh, masters would be held accountable. And the reason that my brother used the word supposedly is uh, even though that there were these laws, there were laws that were put into place specifically that would say that um, a slave owner would be allowed to beat their slave and do this, that, and the third, but they could not mutilate and they could not kill. But the only problem with that is, one, we've all kind of seen the way that people um, obey certain laws, especially in society, especially when they know that they can get away with it and the other thing is is that part of the code noir uh, that was put into place specifically um, prohibited any slave from being able to testify in a court so even if they were to be uh, if a slave owner were to be uh, mutilating or killing his slaves there would be nobody who'd be able to come forward with that information besides another owner and the majority of the time As history has shown, as we've talked about in the series even, um, people look out for those that are following in their own interests more than doing the right thing or doing the more humane thing.
1: No, and part of what you see is that there's even prohibitions against like splitting up children and families and that kind of thing, which is a surprising recognition of the fact that, you know, these people are allowed to have families and allowed to have a wife and that kind of stuff but it's a very different form of slavery than what's going to come later. Like you were saying before Um, what it reminded me of though, is my own research that I did in history where I was looking at legal cases in um, in South Carolina and excuse me, Virginia, there was another person that was looking at cases in South Carolina that were similar. I was looking at cases in um, the Commonwealth of Virginia. And basically what you saw at a certain point is early on, Um, slave masters were pretty much allowed to do what they wanted to. There was even a case where this guy basically tortured and, and beat his slave to death. He was acquitted. Later on, though, starting in like the 1820s, the 1830s, as abolition is starting to heat up, a slave master was brought to court for doing something similar. And he was actually put in jail because of this. And the lawyers were like, hey, what are you talking about? You know, 30 years ago, this was fine. And it's not that the courts wanted to protect slaves or wanted slaves to have better lives or anything like that. But it was a way to better control slaves. It was a way to make slavery look better in the, in the eyes of the common public. And it gave less ammunition to abolitionists, but it also made it less likely for slaves to want to insurrect or rebel because if they could keep, you know, if they could be treated somewhat humanely, the thought was, you know, maybe they won't run away or, or rebel as much. And so I think that's the same kind of thinking that's coming into effect here. For sure. Now. Uh, Just to quickly go over some rules and regulations that were
0: enforced through the Noir Slave Code, Uh, one of the more important ones that I wanted to bring up was the fact that no Jewish person was able to reside in France or specifically French colonies. Um, And it's just another highlight of the uh, conditions that the Jewish people throughout history had always been put through. Um, and it's something that obviously we're going to be going on uh, further in other in other series. Uh, the next one of the next rules uh, that was put into place through this code was that all slaves were to be baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. So you saw a lot of missionaries and you saw a lot of uh, conversion. And I, I don't know what other way to put it other than just the fact that it was just conversion and uh Maybe brainwashing would be a better way of putting it because a lot of people were forcibly put uh, into believing uh, Catholicism as a whole. And one of the other important rules that was put into place is that any public exercise or worship of religion besides Catholicism was prohibited. Um, Masters who would allow any sort of different religion to be practiced on on their plantation could also receive punishment. And last, one of the last rules that I just wanted to quickly go over is the fact that only Catholic marriages would be recognized. So if you were somebody who had gotten married um, through some other sort of religious belief, it would not be recognized by this territory or this colony, rather.
1: Well, and you may be asking yourself, well, what other religion are they talking about? And that's part of what I was going to be talking about next here, Hirsch. I think that's a, a great segue um, we can come back to the noir code or quote noir if you'd like, but I, I thought a good segue um, since you brought up the religious aspect is it's not Protestantism that they're worried about. It's not evangelical, you know, uh, missionaries coming to the island trying to convert these slaves to a different form of Christianity. Mace, mainly, what they're worried about is what we um, commonly think of stereotypically as like you know black magic and that kind of stuff. But what you can call voodoo, v o d o u. Um, Patient voodoo, to be specifically, uh, to be specific, because there are other forms of it in different places, but that's what they were were writing these codes against.
0: Well, and, and again to highlight, the reason that uh, voodoo specifically was was outlawed is, as I had mentioned previously, the idea and the concept of being able to subjugate anybody is to remove their identity, and obviously religion is a very important part of one being able to explore and um, acknowledge their identity. And so when you remove that, uh, that practice or that belief, you're able to, uh, to enforce your will, I guess, was a way of putting it.
1: Yeah, and voodoo kind of represents like one of the ways that African culture was able to be um, kept and expressed in different ways by the slave populations, not only in Haiti, but eventually in, in the American South and Cuba and that kind of thing as well. And part of the background, really quick to understand of of why Voodoo um, made the appearance and made the impression that did it in a place like Haiti and in Saint Dominique, excuse me, is that because of the plantation system, because of the way that slavery was processing um, so many people and going through so many deaths and so many diseases and that kind of thing, is you had a constant repopulation of slaves that were getting brought on the island from Africa. So you had people who were coming in kind of what you would think of as almost like with that religion still, as opposed to people who had been there for a couple generations who maybe had gotten that religion taken away from them. So you had this constant refresh of these religious ideas that would merge with the Catholicism and other French inspirations that were there, other Spanish inspirations that were there. So you have an example of, of a syncretic religion, basically, where, where they call it uh Syncretism, excuse me, where you have Catholicism, actually Freemasonry is involved with it, and these composite African beliefs, where there it's people from Benin, or other places in West and Central Africa who have these belief systems that are then taken to the New World and, and passed along in these communities. And keep in mind the way that slaves end up divided into these different communities they end up getting split along language and geographical lines. And so they're having to create this common culture with people who aren't necessarily from the place that they're from, but they have commonality and they kind of take that commonality and mold it, mold it into something else along with this Catholic and Freemason idea. And I don't want to get too specific into voodoo because I think it does get into stereotypes if it's the two of us talking about a religion that we don't really or a belief system that we don't totally understand they basically a lot of people argue anyway that they disguised their what you call the ilah or the owa as catholic saints in order to keep on worshiping them so part of what Hearst is talking about this code noir is they're forced to convert to catholicism just like in in Spain, the the Jews and the and the Muslims were forced to convert to Catholicism, but probably still kept belief going on in the background through hidden means, if possible, or if they wanted to. I think the same thing was happening here, where you have these Catholic saints who are who are almost um, seen as analogous to these different spirits from these different African traditions and that kind of thing.
0: And, and through that, it was it was a way that they could uh, they could apply. Their own belief system, under the guise of Catholicism, and uh, basically keep their life. Because I think it's, I think it's more than fair to say that anybody who would be put in that position um, would do anything they possibly could to survive uh, while trying to maintain any any scratch or any sort of grasp of their own personal identity.
1: No, I, absolutely, and and it turns out that the way their belief system is structured, at least from what I was able to take from it, take this with a grain of salt, because, you know, I don't really think of myself as an expert on it or anything like that. But they had, a, had they have a belief in a higher being who that you can talk to through emissaries or that you can talk through through go-betweens, almost the same way that Catholics sometimes view saints as a way to talk through God, you know, or to God through them. And uh, the Catholic saints had a similar role. So I think it wasn't too much of a stretch to kind of to put these roles onto the Catholic saints and be able to use their imagery and still get away with your own own version of your religion. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to voodoo if you wanna look it up more. Um, That's where the idea of like the zombie that we think of actually comes from is Haitians voodoo. Um, It's a little bit different. It's more of a person who gets taken over or controlled. There's a really interesting book, um, partially true, I don't know how true, called The Serpent and the Rainbow. They actually made a movie out of it back in the day that was pretty weird and pretty interesting about an anthropologist who goes to Haiti and ends up getting like too involved with people who are, who are like, into voodoo and that kind of thing. But I take it with a grain of salt because I don't like to stereotype too much. And I just wanted to talk about it mainly as a way to show that these African people that were taken as slaves were able to hold on to that, uh, to that culture and to make it something different and to combine it with these other things, I think in an interesting way.
0: Well, and, and, and to quickly uh, kind of interject there in, in terms when we're speaking to Voodoo, I think, I think it's right that we kind of at least hesitate or pause on trying to go any deeper because unfortunately, uh, because of Western culture, there have been a lot of misconceptions and a lot of uh, kind of fear tactics that have been applied to it. Um, and, and i think a, a lot of the stereotypes obviously when people hear voodoo they think of mind control they think of zombies they think of uh dark art type magic if you will um and, but the truth be told uh, when it comes down to it uh religion um in, in, in most forms uh, all boils down to more about like life lessons and perseverance of life as well as a uh, sense of community empathy sympathy things of that nature. And I think it would be a disservice to try to uh, only approach voodoo on the aspect of making it seem as if it was something dark. Because I mean, at the end of the day, you could say, if you were to take certain dark aspects of even Catholicism, right, the idea of drinking the blood of Christ, the idea of eating the body of Christ, the ideas that we have applied through Catholicism, um, if you were to Tell that to somebody who didn't understand necessarily Western religion, that would be something frightening and intimidating to them as well. So I don't think that would be uh, one right or too fair.
1: No, absolutely. And part of what we see is, like I mentioned before, that that large slave population um, at one point um, just before the revolution in 1790, because of that constant import- importing, you know, slave growth. Um, the number was up to 600,000 um, slaves. That ratio that I've seen is either 12 to 1 for every 12 slaves for every one white person, or maybe even up to 20 to 1 as far as that ratio. And so if you're kind of asking for trouble when you start to talk about numbers like that and the way that you have your, your society structured as far as your hierarchy goes. Because you really had a hierarchy of the white people and then free people of color and then the slaves on the bottom, because really the indigenous people had been wiped out. So when we talked about the hierarchies in Latin America, you can think of it very similarly, especially eventually as we see the white population leave Haiti, where it's the the mixed people and the formerly free people of color, basically, who end up forming the elite versus the black population that makes up the majority.
0: Well, and and an important thing to keep in mind as well is the fact that Uh, Free people of color. Uh, You hear that term and you start thinking, okay, well, these are people who had been freed from slavery. And obviously um, they will be able to have their, quote, pursuit of happiness. Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't always the case, because as we see through different colonization, anybody who is considered a subject of a colony, isn't really granted that many rights, and if they are granted rights, it's usually very small, minuscule, and only add up a little bit towards property rights, even if that. So that's just one thing to keep in mind when we when we speak about the uh, the free uh, people of color, specifically the uh, the African slaves ever used.
1: And an example of what I wanted to talk about too, along with that culture of, of voodoo and other things, being able to to kind of keep that African culture and that community going is something called the Maroon community and the Creole cultures where you had these escaped slaves and their descendants who would form their own communities. You end up seeing that in the Americas, you end up seeing that all around the Caribbean. We talked about it a little bit in Latin America in South America and that kind of thing too. Um, one of the people I wanted to mention though, that is involved in this and he eventually becomes kind of an inspiration for, uh, for the Haitian revolution that we'll be talking about is a gentleman named uh, Francois McIndall. And he is the leader of one of these maroon communities. And he is also known as a Haitian voodoo priest or a hunkan, I believe is the pronunciation. I'm not 100% sure. But he's a really interesting figure. And um, part of what I know about him is, is, I hate to say it, but it's from the Assassin's Creed games. Because <laughs> um, in Assassin's Creed 3, uh, there's a spinoff called uh, Liberation where you play as uh, people who are in- involved in the Maroon community and you're dealing with like freeing slaves and that kind of thing. And one of the people mentions that he was trained by Mackendall as an assassin and that kind of thing. And the story of Mackendall is, is pretty interesting, um, partly because it's speculated that he was maybe um, Arabic and that he might have been Muslim and that he, he you don't really see a lot of connection between Islam and, and voodoo but he might've been a very big exception to that. He would pretty much try to use poison a lot of the time. And he was able to spread terror by poisoning supplies and animals, uh, water supplies and animals and that kind of thing. And in the game, it's talked about how he tries to poison the the Countess of Saint Dominique and how he eventually loses out because of that. But he had also lost his right arm, most likely in a sugarcane press. And so he was this leader who was missing an arm that would, uh, in the game wear like a skull face painting and it was pretty fucking badass. And, uh, so I thought that was pretty cool that it was tying in, but he is eventually, um, he's active in like the, the middle of the 1700s he's eventually caught and and burned alive, um, after being condemned to death by, for poisoning all those people. So he was a leader. I just wanted to at least mention really quick, not only because of the, uh, interesting video game tie-in but also to bring up those maroon communities and those creole communities where you have a lot of that uh african um synchronization that i was talking about where you have a lot of different people from different areas people from different um that speak different languages that are coming together trying to create a common common society when they're not allowed to take part in the normal society
0: well and i think i think it's good to bring up at least two because obviously creole is something that um, here in the United States, especially if you're from the South, you are very familiar with. Um, and, it's, and it's one of those things where a lot of people might have the question in their mind exactly uh, what, what or who is, uh, is Creole and how was it officially started. And um, with this episode, that's one thing I'm looking forward to is being able to tie in exactly how Haiti became uh, influenced in, in Southern life, as well as with things like the Creoles. And, uh, and, and I think that's really great that you have both of it. So thank you.
1: Yeah, and like the Maroon communities were able to sometimes make um, joint cause with the few Taino settlements who did exist still, um, who were able to escape the Spanish. And so you do see a little bit of indigenous activity there. I don't want to cut that short either. Um, but yeah, I think um, starting with a guy you know, like, uh, like MacAndal, who led a early slave revolt or early Maroon revolt where he was poisoning the drinking water. Um, I wanted to bring up a guy who I want to make sure I get his name right. His name was Duddy Buchman. He was also a Maroon leader. He was also most likely a, uh, voodoo priest of some kind, but he was a key leader in the slave revolt that we're going to see set off the French revolution. It was in the La Cap France, uh, region in the north of the colony, uh, where they had this huge congregation of, of slaves meeting up to discuss what they are going to do to these masters, what they are going to try to get accomplished. There's a lot of talk about voodoo being a very important part of this. But again, I'm going to try not to get too much into that speculation. But he basically is able to lead a whole bunch of people in 1791 to take on um, colonial troops and the, and, the slave, and the French planters who are controlling the colony. And so this slave revolt in 1791 is pretty much considered like the beginning of the Haitian revolution. Um, Boukman is captured by the French. They execute him and then they display his head publicly trying to show off, you know, Hey, you know, he wasn't invincible. You aren't going to believe to, you aren't going to be able to to follow this guy because he's dead now.
0: Well, and I mean, it's, things like that, putting heads on pikes or anything like that, that's always kind of uh, an imperious po- imperialist power move, right? Like the whole reason of using violent force isn't, isn't to necessarily kill or to maim everybody part of that society because you still need subjects to accumulate wealth off of. But if you can at least make an example, especially out of a leader like that, you're able to enforce the idea or the notion it's just like what happens today that if it can happen to that motherfucker who has it good, it can happen to your ass who is like absolutely no one.
1: And he's another guy too where the the there's controversy over his origins. Some people believe he was also um, Muslim, surprisingly. That he came from um, what you'd consider Senegal or Gambia today. That the reason he was called uh, Bookman, B-O-U-K-M-A-N, was actually uh, a bastardization of Bookman, because he was supposedly teaching other slaves to read, and that kind of thing. Or some people think that he was called Man of the Book, which was like another term for a Muslim, because you know they, they in in Islam they call people people of the book if they believe in Judaism or Christianity, because they're at the beginning, you know, it's all Abrahamic. That's where that comes from. But there's also people who say, no, he probably came from, from Jamaica, that he was French Catholic. He wasn't even a leader of this revolutionary army. Um, he's just kind of a, a story that became popular later. So it's not really known for sure. But I prefer the interesting aspect of the story, I think, um, especially seeing the controversy over it. I'm not necessarily 100 percent convinced that he wasn't involved, and that he wasn't a leader. And I think the, the Bookman story is kind of cool, even if it's not 100 percent true.
0: No, for sure. and and I mean, the thing is, there's been there's been more things I've been seeing lately that have been showing the, I wouldn't say the infiltration, but the the crossroads of the Arabic and Muslim community, even in uh, places such as uh, Norway and Sweden um as far back as to the Vikings. So, I just thought that was kind of cool, too.
1: No, absolutely. And that might be part of what they're talking about, the Code Noir, part of what they're stamping out. It may be Islam, and they just don't either name it because they don't understand what it is, or they don't want to understand what it is. So that may be part of it, too. And so even though voodoo isn't seen as having these great connections to Islam, the fact that two of these major leaders were possibly uh, Muslim, I think, is something to at least mention. And the fact that they're both Maroon leaders, I think, is very important, too, because it shows that not only were these slave populations willing to revolt early on, but they were, they were forming their own communities where they were supporting each other and trying to free other slaves and that kind of thing too. And uh, I hate to bring up the video game stuff like I had done, but I thought that was a, a good way to tie it in just in case anybody has played that kind of stuff. Also one way to get all the freaking nerds' attention. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm, I'm totally a nerd. so I, I, And the history stuff has always appealed to me, so those games were right up my alley oh yeah well i mean i think it's safe to say
0: everybody's well aware of us being nerds because i mean we have a podcast that's mostly about history so
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and and what we're going to see now starting at least with the haitian revolution is um the background of that obviously was this the slave revolt that i talked about you had a lot of uh slave insurrections a lot of slave rebellion a lot of slave um disobedience you know that kind of thing But you also had the French Revolution in the background, along with uh, other political tensions that were going on in the island as well. We're not going to spend too much time on the Haitian Revolution proper. I know some people are probably like, well, what the fuck? Why aren't you talking about it? It's kind of important. Absolutely. I just don't think we can do great service to it in the short time that we have here to talk about the entirety of, of Haitian history. I think Hirsch and I, as we were discussing, we'd like to do an episode on slave revolts and revolutions in, in the future, and I think Haiti kind of stands out as a very important version because really, it's the only slave revolt that was ever successful in creating its own country and creating its own republic. And I think you have to think of Haiti in those terms as as a success story in that way. Even though, like I said in the beginning, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere for all these different reasons that we're going to talk about coming up, but it is a success story in the fact that you had a former slave colony that, that basically rose up, replaced those masters with a Republic, whether that Republic lasted or whether it, it was able to succeed from the beginning is a completely different argument. But I, I, think you can look at that as a, as a, especially as a leftist or as a person who cares about other people bucket, not even as a leftist, just somebody who has empathy that, you know, this is a, an important part of, a, of human history. Well, and it's one that rarely ever gets
0: talked about because and, and for obvious reasons, I mean, you even had people like Thomas Jefferson here in the United States, as well as different Southern uh, members of Congress before they split to the Confederacy they specifically did everything they could to know and to remove the information and the, and the recognition of uh, Haiti as a nation itself, um, specifically because of the fact of how successful these uh, slave revolts were.
1: No, absolutely. And, and so you have, in, in Northern Haiti, you had bookmen like I was talking about, getting the slave population to, to first revolt. You have a gentleman named Toussaint Louverture who eventually comes in, takes control of these slave armies in 1791. He actually gets backing from the Spanish in Santo Domingo, who want to fuck the French up as much as possible. Why not? Um, And so soon a full-blown rebellion breaks out across the entire colony. Um, The French government does what they can to try to reestablish control. Um, they been, at first are able to form an alliance with the free people of color by either trying to give them a little bit better treatment, giving them a little bit more decision-making. You also have at the same time the French Revolution. Like I mentioned before, the French Revolution kicks off in 1789. It's still ongoing the entire time that uh, the Haitians are starting to break out. You have Rose Pierre leading the National Convention and the Jacobins who are seen as like the radical version of the French revolution, where they basically endorse uh, abolishing slavery and extend that to all the French colonies. So they're like, Hey, maybe if we abolish slavery, we can kind of keep hold of this stuff, keep it from breaking apart.
0: The U S is not
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I I was going to say the reason that the French revolution is important at this time is because those who were in Haiti are well aware of the situation. Obviously, if there's a nation that's dealing with a revolution, the main source of all of their military might, the main source of their economic power is going to be focused on shoring up their defenses at home. And so the Haitian population at that time was able to see this and they, and they were able to use that as an opportunity to start their own revolution as well.
1: Well, and the ideas and the language are, are, going to cross over right when you have people talking about liberty equality freedom like you know those kind of things are going to resonate with people who you're holding it from if that's what you're arguing for as a french revolutionary yourself right Mm. absolutely and so you're going to have that kind of that bleed bleed over effect even if you're talking about white people when you say liberty equality like people around you are going to pick up on that and say well why is that just you and I think that's what the French are in the position of, where you have the the French government at the time in the revolution, trying to argue for for class equality, trying to argue for an end to religious discrimination, trying to argue for uh, ending the church's hold on society, et cetera. That to then hold that away from a certain people is very hypocritical, and I, I think that's why, um, whether those Robespierre or others were like, hey, we need to we need to do what we can, and so. Can you- Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say,
0: and I think I think one of the most important parts for that was the was the writings of Thomas Paine and the Right of Man.
1: Yeah, Rights of Man, absolutely. No, I, I I think that you're absolutely right. I go on a little bit because uh, that's I was going to bring up next. Go for it.
0: So so basically, when I brought up the Right of Man, uh, Thomas Paine, who was a writer, he was one of the few people that was basically speaking out and speaking up on. Uh, defense for the French Revolution because obviously um, throughout history anytime that you have people questioning those in authority anytime you have people realizing that they are not uh, being given the opportunity for uh, fairness for a for a trade in life you will see that and one of the more important things from the from the writings right now oh man is he, basically what Thomas Paine was saying that any, any person is able to question and to fight against a government or a monarchy in particular um, when they're not being represented wholly and they're not being able to get the same uh, the same opportunities those who are wealthy and who have, hold power. And the main thing was a lot of the dissent against the revolution at that time. Was a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you know, it's the same thing you hear now, like, oh, they're just mad because, you know, this person made it. And a lot of people tried making it into the revolution was specifically um, anti anti king when more so as as written in the race of man, it wasn't necessarily a critique on the king. It was more a critique on the monarchy and the societal structure that was put into place by the monarchy.
1: No, and, and people will probably recognize Thomas, Thomas Paine's name from uh, what was it, Common Sense during the American Revolution and that kind of thing. So he he is very consistent in his view of, of revolution. And he was writing in response to Edmund Burke, who was an English uh, philosopher that people probably know from Leviathan and that kind of thing, who was basically a conservative arguing that the French Revolution was overturning all, of aspect, all aspects of society that were good. And I think when we do a revolution series, that we'll be talking a lot more about that French Revolution background, um, but it it does form a, a big backdrop to the Haitian Revolution that's going on, and I'm I'm glad we at least got to spend a little bit of time talking about that for sure before Napoleon kind of uh kind of makes his appearance here. And yeah, like I mentioned, uh, the U.S. is not very happy that you know they're trying to basically try to help out the planters who are putting down this revolt. Uh, later in the revolution, the U.S. did, did provide support to the Haitians because they were like, hey, if anything, we can get the French out of here. You see the writing on the wall. Since slavery is abolished, uh, Louverture does pledge allegiance to France and he actually fights off the British and Spanish <clears throat> who are trying to take advantage of the chaos and invade Saint-Dominique. Uh, Saint-Dominique. Um, the Spanish basically give back that part of the island to the French in uh, the Peace of Basel in 1795 so the island is once again united under one government but then an insurgency
0: go ahead i was just going to say for those listening who might be wondering what the Peace of basel is just to give a quick overview it was a peace treaty that was involving three different parties um obviously mainly involving france during the french revolution the other was with uh, prussia and the third was with spain
1: No, there was there was a lot of crazy shit going on in Europe. So it all ended up getting tied in with this uh stuff going on in the colonies in the New World as well. Yeah, because all of them were active in the New World. So obviously their their dominion and their their beefs are gonna carry over, right?
0: Yeah. Well, that's where you start seeing the idea of these borders being drawn up for what we now know as modern France and et cetera. So it's definitely important.
1: Yeah, it's, it's where Europe is getting divided into the countries that we think of, where a lot of the big empires are starting to, to fall apart. And we'll see the end of a lot of that stuff with World War I in the future, too. Um, but as far as Haiti proper, uh, there's an insurgency that breaks out against the French in the east eventually. And then in the west of... Sorry about that. And then in the uh, West, there is actually fighting that breaks out between La Verge's, uh forces who are basically you know, the slave armies, and then free people of color who are led by a guy named uh, Rigaud, uh or maybe Rogot. But that leads to what's called the War of the Knives in 1799 to 1800, which is basically a civil war between the black slaves or ex-slaves, and uh, the mixed race people who were led, like I had mentioned, by Regard. And, and so you have these, this is almost like that liberal and conservative split that I was talking about, Hirsch, even though it's different, it's based on this racial hierarchy as opposed to just a political difference, but it, it's almost that fight for who's gonna have control over, over what kind of direction that we take in the beginning.
0: Well, and the reason that there was that fight is, as we had mentioned earlier, obviously, um, with the Noir Code, slaves had been basically stripped of most of their rights. There was only a very few rights that were given to them. Um, And free people of color were basically considered French subjects. So they were under the scrutiny of different colonial laws that the French had been applying. So with that, you saw a lot of jealousy and animosity between the two groups Um, And that's something to keep in mind as we go forward, talking about some of the movements that would eventually take place. I just wanted to
1: quickly add that. Sorry. No, absolutely. And part of what comes about from this is uh, you do have, you know, basically uh, Toussaint able to get victory. Uh, Rigaud goes into exile. He is kind of given credit for for kind of trying to hold back on some things. But one of his officers, along with Henri Christif, was a gentleman named Jean-Jacques Desain, um, where Dessayen is pretty much accused of carrying out these brutal reprisals or these massacres against Regarde supporters, and that maybe Toussaint, he might have ordered these massacres, but that he would give the, the actual execution of those things to his generals. But it, it's not really known for sure who wanted to carry these out. But you had a lot of... Uh, a lot of war crimes basically being committed against the mixed race population after supposed or, or actual um, aggressions against like the black race population. That causes a lot of the mixed race population to flee. So not only are you having the, the what, was, what was called then the mulatto population, the mixed race people, the free people of color, are leaving the island as refugees. Uh, Lovature kind of takes over completely he establishes a new constitution and establishes himself as governor general for life. But as we talked about before in the uh, Napoleonic Wars and the French Wars of succession and all that kind of shit, um, Napoleon kind of makes his uh, appearance, right? And he's like, hold on a minute. And so in 1802, Napoleon sends 20,000 soldiers and another 20,000 sailors over to take French control of the island.
0: They aren't and he successful. Was basically, and, he, and he was basically using his brother-in-law um, and he yeah, had sent clerk. him over there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that was a way for him to, one, be able to have a close eye and have somebody that he could trust. But, I mean, I think we can all agree, brother-in-laws or any in-laws for that matter, we, we can sometimes see as expendable, you know what I'm saying? So, I think that was kind of the overall idea and impression that uh, Napoleon had.
1: No, absolutely. Like if he can pull it off, that's even better. And I have somebody who I can trust and control. And if he can't, then I'm out of brother-in-law who fucking cares, right? Exactly. And so the French come over there en masse to try to take back over uh, control of the colony. Um, They're able to get some victories. The Haitians are fighting like a guerrilla conflict. They're able to kind of use the terrain more than just the geography or the climate to their advantage. Uh, most of the French army ends up dying from yellow fever. You have more than 50,000 French troops who die in the event- eventually in, the, in this fighting, including up to 18 generals. The French do capture Louverture. He's sent to France for trial where he eventually dies of probably tuberculosis and most likely exposure. But the fighting continues in Haiti. Um, the slaves do get support from the free people of color who do remain, along with other allies, and continue that fight for independence, led by uh, Dessalines, who I mentioned before, another general named Alexandre Petion, and uh, Henri Christophe. They beat the French at the Battle of Berthier, I believe, is how that's pronounced in 1803. Sorry, Hirsch, if I got that wrong.
0: No, nope, it and looks so, right
1: And so, yeah, Dessalines is basically leading, you know, throughout this whole time, this really successful guerrilla campaign against Napoleon and his Napoleon's forces, uh, letting those diseases do their kind of thing. Um, with that victory, Haiti becomes the first nation to ever gain independence through a slave revolt, like I had mentioned before. This kind of leads to Napoleon being like, fuck it. I'm getting out of here, taking my ball and going home. He pulls his remaining troops. He also gives uh, up the idea of any kind of North American empire like we had talked about before. And he sells um, what you would call New France or Louisiana to the United States, which is a lot of the Western portion of what we consider now the United States. Overall, um, as far as, like, numbers go, it's estimated that between 24,000 and 100,000 Europeans and between 100,000 and 350,000 Haitian ex-slaves died in the revolution. Um, a lot of people give credit to Dessalines as probably the most successful person to ever take on Napoleon in, in conflict. Because really, if you think about, like, Napoleon was barely defeated in Europe, right? Like, but you had this Haitian uh, uprising that was basically able to put him on his ass before anybody else could.
0: Well, and it was very interesting, too, finding out that basically the the Haitian uh, slave revolts were basically coincidentally responsible for the Louisiana Purchase, which I just thought was kind of
1: interesting. Hey, he's basically he, he sees like, hey, if if we're losing the crown jewel, if we're losing a lot of the money, we're losing the moneymaker as far as these plantations go, it's not even going to be worth the money to keep. Uh, the other one's going because we're just going to have to fight over them constantly. We're going to have other slave revolts. Fuck it. Let that be somebody else's problem. Exactly. And I wonder. So it
0: turns out Thomas Jefferson wasn't really a great businessman. He was just an opportunist fleas bag.
1: Oh, pretty much. And he also was a hypocrite because he believed that executives should never should never have the power to make that kind of decision like he did. And when he had the chance, he fucking made it.
0: Exactly, just goes to show that anybody who's center, or center right, or far right and in that matter, they don't really have any principles or standards or morals that they sit upon. It's just about winning.
1: No, absolutely, and 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 with that winning speaking of in the Haitian Revolution, um, you have Haiti established. Uh, it's the it's three eighths of Hispaniola. It's the what takes up the western portion. Well, we'll kind of get into what happens to that eastern portion here pretty soon. Um, you do have Haiti combining with the other parts of Hispaniola later on, on and once they're independent, but eventually they are going to lose the Spanish portion of the island uh, at first to Spanish control and then eventually to uh, Dominican uh, control as a uh, country that's independent itself. I'm not going to spend too much time here, Hirsch, on the, uh, this period of Haitian independence, just because I think the pattern is probably more important to talk about. For but sure. Was there was there anything specific um, that we either maybe left out of the revolution or before we got into the into the overview of the of the independent Haiti one dimension?
0: Um, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of give a quick little overview. I won't get into too much. I'll let you set it up. But I just I, I think that the important thing to keep in mind is. Um, when it comes to the independence movement that was happening in Haiti, and this was taking place between 1804 and 1806, um, you're you're going to see that uh, Jean Jacques is going to proclaim himself emperor for life. And it's, it's one of these things that we see echo throughout this entire series, as well as throughout history, where you see people who are able to become uh, become idols or kind of become uh, celebrities, if you will. And because of that power that they have socially, they are able to implement basically their political will and kind of um, start succumbing to, to greed. What's, what's the old quote? Absolute power comes with absolute corruption, right? And so you start seeing that here start to unfold when the independence movement of Haiti is moving. Um, And one other thing I wanted to add in really quickly is um, basically you start seeing the protection offered to different white planters, which are basically plantation owners. Um, But when Jean-Jacques de Saunier, if I said that correct, um, once he became into power, he started massacring basically any remaining white people that were left on the island that included men, women and children. Um, between January and April of 1804, three to 5,000 white people were killed, including those that were friendly and sympathetic to the black population, whether that they were freed or uh, slaves currently.
1: No, I'm, I'm glad you brought that aspect of it up. And, and part of what we're going to see with that immediate aftermath um, and that internal division that we're eventually going to see here coming up in Haiti is the 1804 Haiti Massacre, where um, basically the, the French or the French Creole population that remained in Haiti after the Haitian Revolution, where Desailles had, Desailles had originally, or originally excuse me, talked about protecting the white population, but he once in power, like you said, is corrupted by whatever and decides to go against that, um, where he has the what you consider the white or the Creole population um, killed by the soldiers and, and former slaves. He was saying that, you know, they were conspiring against the new Republic. He, the, he was probably paranoid about power and, and it's seen as basically a form of genocide on the Island of trying to wipe out like an entire group and community. Um, basically it was white men, women, and children between January and April of 1804. I, I think the numbers are between three and 5,000 people that were killed. Hirsch, I don't know if you saw the same number. Yep. Um, there were there were groups of protected white people who were seen as exceptions. There was Polish soldiers who actually had kind of turned against the French. They were hired in it originally by the French in the Revolution. I probably should have mentioned this before. I forgot to. But you had French, uh, excuse me, Polish uh, soldiers hired by the French that eventually turned and joined the Haitians because they saw more common cause with them. Um, you had a small group of German colonists who had gotten really influential in the northwest of Haiti. And then some professionals and medical doctors and that kind of thing. And if you were connected to an army officer um, or if you're a white woman who agreed to marry a non-white man, you were um, spared. I don't want to focus too much because I think this has the opportunity to get into like really like scary, like white replacement theory kind of stuff where you have like the right wing talking about like in South Africa, white people are getting killed left and right because they're white. And obviously this happened the way it did. Um, it's something to mention, but I, I don't think you can read too much into what the Haitian Revolution was going after when you see what happened with this event.
0: Well, it's one thing to keep in mind too that um, to, to think of it as a white replacement theory is kind of asinine. I think if anything that the, the actions that were taking place is more of a wariness of the very people who subjugated you and your countrymen for uh, decades if not hundreds of years so i think that i'm not necessarily excusing what happened but at least presenting the table for for people to understand the context of the situation it wasn't a case of like oh well you know what you're white so we just want to kill you or any other sort of talking point that you would hear like in fox news or whatever um I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that they are uh, exonerated for doing things the way that they did, but it's something to keep in mind to explain exactly why they did what they did. Mm -hmm.
1: No, absolutely. And again, I I don't want to focus too much on this period because I think we're only like a page or two in and we only have like less than an hour left. So I want to make sure that we get to talk about everything that we want to talk about. But um, in this independence, in this early independence period, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that they're trying to form a new economy while dealing with population loss and aggression from outside states. Because as Hirsch mentioned, the United States is definitely not happy that you have an independent Haiti. They refuse to recognize the country um, for a long time. I know, I think Britain doesn't even recognize it at first, that kind of thing. Um, So there's definitely uh, resentment going on. You have a big wave of immigration where you have a lot of refugees, whether it's white people or people of color, Along with their slaves are definitely going to places like New Orleans, going to definitely influence uh, the culture in New Orleans, and, and we see that to this day as well. Another thing to keep in mind is, I think the overall question, does Haiti want to be a republic, or does it want to be an empire, or what kind of government does it want to have? That's something to keep in mind for this period, where you see Almost from the beginning, a split in Haiti, where in the north you have, a, uh, you have Henri, who calls himself a king and claims a kingdom in the north. Um, he's going to be basically going against uh, another former leader of the revolution, who is controlling the, the southern part, where uh, Petion, who um, is a, person, uh, a mixed person of, or a free person of color, um, who is um, leading one of those armies along with uh, Henri Christophe and others. Um, Petion he wants a republic he's not as much of an absolutist Christophe wants to basically be king he establishes like a feudal system called the corvée system where people are forced to work on certain projects or labor unpaid for certain times a year he builds like this giant fucking castle that the ruins still stand and that kind of thing where uh, Petion was much more of a of a a democrat he supported Bolivar who is trying to fight for his independence in New Granada that we talked about. He's also able to, uh, to basically set up, you know, a much more of what we would consider uh, less absolutist system. The French are able to take over Eastern Hispaniola around this time. Um, then the area goes back to Spanish rule. And eventually the Dominican Republic, after being united as part of Hispaniola, splits and forms its own kind of thing. It becomes the Dominican Republic as we know it today, where what we used to consider Hispaniola is split between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, you have people in the 1840s and 1850s who are calling themselves emperors and, and having control for decades. And so again, the, this Haitian question at the time becomes, are we a republic? Are we an empire? What kind of um, government do we want? Are we even going to be a democracy? And, and that's something just to, uh, I don't mean to to fast forward too much, but that's something I wanted to make sure I mentioned.
0: No, for sure. Um, and, and with that, I think I'll quickly transition. I'm going to do a quick overview of the U.S. occupation from oh,
1: 1950. Oh, sorry. I just have one dude I wanted to mention. There's this dude, um, Antoinette Fermin, who was a Haitian philosopher who basically argued against like this French asshole in the 1880s about whether um, there were races and whether certain races were superior to others. And he basically was like, hey, white dude, you're full of shit. The races are equal. There's no such thing as race. And he actually founded Pan-Africanism and uh, Pan-Caribbeanism, like in a couple of different ways. And so Furman is just a dude I wanted to mention really quick because he is pretty cool.
0: No, for sure. Um, I'll quickly go over the U.S. occupation era of Haiti because I think um, with the Banana War series that we had done before, as well as previous episodes, I think we've kind of covered well enough Exactly. Everything that kind of transpired and everything that set the table for U.S. occupation, specifically
1: in the Caribbean and uh, South America. But yeah, like they were they were worried about like the Germans. Right. Because there was a big German economic influence in the northern part of the island, like I mentioned before. And so the U.S. is like, hey, Monroe doctor and motherfuckers.
0: Well, and, and you know, on top of that, too, you were able to to get the common person more intrigued by this idea because you have a small minority that is basically in control of the country. And anytime that you see a small minority be the, you know, the, the loud minority rather um, you start to see animosity and you see different atrocities happening to specific people. And in this case, it was those who were uh, basically those who were black that were in Haiti.
1: Yeah, and and Furman is basically that dude I mentioned, that philosopher. He's actually leading some of the rebels who are fighting a civil war against the government um, at this time. And so in the early 1900s, Haiti is just seen as this unstable place where you don't know who's going to be in control. And so the U.S. is worried about this large debt that's due to both uh, France, Germany, and the United States. Because as I I want to bring up in this period, too, this is when France decides that Haiti owes France a, a huge debt because, you know, they they were a former colony and they're owed a whole bunch of money. And and I think Haiti wasn't even able to pay that off until like the 19 fucking 60s or something like that.
0: Well, And one of the main reasons for that is because you saw in 19, 1914, sorry, the United States removed at that time, $500,000 from the Haiti National Bank. And the way that they removed it was uh, in a way that they would still maintain control over that bank and to keep any other sort of force, specifically Germany, from being able to take over and influence that area.
1: Mm -hmm. No, and uh, the U.S. basically is, is almost pressed to intervene after the president at the time, a guy named Sam, last name, don't mean to just call him like Sam, like I'm calling him by his first name where he basically orders the execution of 167 political prisoners, including a former president. And it leads to an uprising where he eventually is lynched by a mob and, and killed uh, the U S saw it as like an anti-American revolt for some reason, because uh, you know, Sam may protected some business interest in that kind of thing. The, there was a term for these leaders of different uh, communities who Called the Cacao or Caco, um, where there was this guy named Bobo who was an anti-American. Where they wanted him to be the next president. The United States was like, "Hey, let's make sure we don't do this." Woodrow Wilson orders the Marines into Haiti in 1915. They're fearing basically any kind of anti-U.S. sentiment. They wanted to protect American and other foreign interests. It's pretty clear, like we had talked about before in our Banana uh, Wars episode, in our um, American diplomacy episodes, like Hirsch had said, uh, what America was really doing here and what they wanted. And, and so basically they take over Haitian institutions. They, they put in their own version of presidents that they want. They write a new constitution that constitution was actually written partially by FDR, Hirsch. I didn't know if you knew that. That I did not. Yeah. And so basically it's this pro-U.S. constitution that comes up um, that would, be, would make it so that um, foreigners can own land, which really pissed a lot of people off. But there was a lot of infrastructure projects. There was some improvement in, in standard of living. Um, they also consolidated a lot of power in the capital Port-au-Prince to try to centralize the government and that kind of thing. Um, The growing economy pleased like the free people of color or the former free people of color and the mixed race population who are getting more political power themselves. But there are these uh, cocoa wars that are going on where you do have these insurgencies going on. Um, But again, like we saw in the banana wars, you know, those things are usually um, taken out when it comes to uh, American superior forces and that kind of thing. There is eventually... uh, Another presidency that's put in by the United States, and they're seen as, you know, hey, we, we took care of what we need to take care of. And then again, the Depression is pretty much what ends U.S. occupation. 1934, that withdrawal isn't an accident like we talked about before, whether it was Hoover or later on FDR, wanting to change American image, also saw it as one of these things where we just can't afford to do it anymore. And and one of one of those leaders I did want to mention really quick was a guy named uh, Charlemagne Peralti. Um, He was a big early on leader and they basically they put his body on display after they killed him, but they made his body look like Christ getting crucified. And it ended up being like a totally opposite piece of propaganda for them. And it basically kept the, the rebellion going on for like a lot longer than it probably would have. So I just wanted to mention him really quick.
0: Well, I mean, it, it was one of those things, obviously, as we had brought up <laughs> before, uh, Roman Catholicism was something that was basically ingrained into the population. So um, in a way, just because of the comparisons between Catholicism and voodoo proper, uh, you were able to see the, uh, the martyrdom and the... Uh, What's the word I want to use? The idolization of of Charlemagne and with this crucifixion that had basically taken place,
1: no, and and that eventually you know leads to that prolonged occupation that the United States basically considers um, successful because you know you're able to get a more US, pro-U.S. government able to make sure that uh, the business interests are, are kept fine. Well, and most,
0: that, oh, sorry, yeah. and most importantly, I'm no, sorry. no, no. Go just, uh, ahead. Just to remove any sort of agrarian politics that had actually taken a foothold in that nation at the time.
1: Yeah, they wanted to be like an urban workforce. They wanted to be big plantations still. They wanted to be big as opposed to small farmers, because that's the resentment the whole time, right? Is like, even when you had the new republic formed, you had these systems where the leaders were like, "Hey, we need to keep these plantations going." Because we need to get money as a new country. We owe a lot of debt. We're not able to pay our bills. And the everyday people are like, no, man, I just want to have my own farm and, and, and live like I want to live. And, and so you have this tension almost from the beginning in each of these new republics that are formed, where, where the new leaders have to almost work harder than a normal leader would just to catch up, you know. And I think, unfortunately, that becomes a lot of the time right for dictatorship, as we're going to see.
0: Well, I think that's a good transition now. um, Was there anything else that you wanted to get into in terms of the, uh, the independence movement or the U S occupation?
1: No, I I think we did a pretty good job. I I was able to mention a couple of people. I mentioned, I, I probably should mention more about, you know, Furman and that kind of stuff and, and the other leaders of, of the insurgency. But I, I, think the general picture was shown in our Banana Wars episode about what American policy was trying to do and, and, and basically what the, what the chances, any kind of insurgency stood against American uh, power. And in this post-occupation era, basically um, from the 30s through like the mid-50s, just a couple things I wanted to mention really quick. You had something called the, the Parsley Massacre, where you have in the Dominican, another dictator co- coming to power, uh, Chirillero who is involved in all kinds of horrible stuff where you have a mass killing of Haitians who are living in the Northwestern frontier of the Dominican Republic and in certain parts of the border area where Dominican army troops came around and they basically um, either beat or forced people um, like beat them with rifles, bayonets and machetes, or they would force people into the water to like drown them. Um, it's, it's some pretty, pretty terrible stuff. And i I I think the number I saw was between like 12,000 and 35,000 deaths. So it's not like just some small incident, but I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned it as part of that ongoing um, pattern you see of just regular people getting fucked over.
0: The echoes of history. Um, yeah. Now, since we, since we had brought up the idea of a dictator, I think that's a good transition into uh I guess we could say the man of the hour because I want to well, quickly.
1: Yeah, just a really quick lead up. Like you, um, you have the, this President Vincent who is getting increasingly dict- dictatorial. He is forced to resign under US pressure. You have Lesgo in, in 41 through 46, who works with the US during World War II, but he's later overthrown by the military. You have Estime, um, Esteem maybe um, from 46 to 50, who is a reformer for the black population. He actually is trying to get some stuff done. He's overthrown by a coup. You then have McGlore, who led the coup, and it takes power from 1950 to 1956, who is a fervent anti-communist. Um, he sees U.S. support and growth of tourism after some political stability. And, and then it sets a pattern for the guy who's going to take power next, who um, is also going to be a fervent anti-communist. Sorry, Hirsch, I just wanted to leave that up.
0: No, no, no. You're, you're perfectly fine. I'm, I'm glad that you didn't link that up, because now... I basically, with obviously with all of what we've heard through this episode and for those who have studied uh, Haiti itself, my question to you, Steve, is the person, the man of the hour, Francois Duvalier. Papa Doc. Yeah, Papa Doc, dude. Fuck free world 313. Um, (laughs) My question would be what do you think necessarily created what became uh, Francois Duvalier's dynasty and the uh the means of the way that he ended up ruling Haiti. Do you-
1: well, I think part, part of it is that turmoil, right? Like that I mentioned before, we have president after president either going too far with their power or not being able to use their power because they're seen as a threat by the elite or by the army or by the military whoever it might be. And so right before duvier is able to take power, you have not only those presidents that I mentioned, but you have four short-lived presidencies, who are basically within the matter of like two or two years of each other. And so you have people either having to resign because they're corrupt or they're getting forced out because they're trying to do something good. And I, I think Duvier was able to walk that line of being popular enough with the right kind of people, but also promising enough to everyday people too. And
0: what were one of the ways that he was able to, because obviously anybody who, who pays attention to any sort of politics uh, in the modern era, how exactly was he able to please both the middle-class and wealthy landowners, as well as the, uh, the more poor and the, uh, I wouldn't say indigenous, but the, the former slave
1: population. Well, and part of what he did is, um, He had served in the government before he was a minister of health and labor, Um, but he opposed uh, McClure's 1950 coup and left the government and went back to practice. So I think in a lot of like professional and liberal minds, a lot of the bourgeois minds, he would be seen as somebody who's not going to, you know, uh, allow a military coup to take away democracy. And he eventually had to go in hiding from the Magalore regime because he was kind of seen as a threat. You know, he had this this version of populism that he liked to talk about. I almost think of him in a in a very weird way. Kind of what I was thinking was the way that Donald Trump was able to be successful, where he's able to to appease a lot of the the elite who who want the same things that he wants, even though they might not like him personally, while also striking a very uh, populist tone where he's letting everyday people know, hey, even though I may not be you, I'm looking out for you.
0: Well, it, it was basically religion is the way that he had kind of tapped into the everyday person market, correct? Like the idea of allowing the open worship of voodoo and being somebody who um, self-proclaimed at least had had practiced and worshiped voodoo
1: as well. Well and that was his support of like the everyday people, right is he wanted everyday people to be able to practice the, ver- the version of what they saw as their version of Roman Catholicism which, which incorporated voodoo um he was pretty much if you look at the campaign that he ran at 57 the guy he was up against was a landowner and a guy who owned like industrial like factories and stuff like that like what other kind of besides being like a landlord or a lawyer who else could you think of that the people would hate more you know what i mean
0: exactly like,
1: it, it's almost like he ran against the perfect candidate like just like I hate to make the comparison because I think Trump has broken our brains, but you know, Trump ran against the perfect candidate too that first time. Right. And so you have the military supporting him. You have him promising to rebuild uh, the country in the rural area. Um, he's able to, to get a lot of people against the, the mulatto, the the mixed race elite where that's what he describes his opponent as. And in that mulatto term in and Haiti is also applying to anybody who's kind of thing seen as like bourgeois or seen as like, you know, trying to, to to like climb that ladder and get better than people. And so I think Duvier is able to paint his opponent as, you know, he's not one of you everyday kind of people. He's one of the elite. Um, I'm not one of the elite. I'm going to help you out. And he pretty <clears throat> much wins the election by almost what, like 400,000 votes. By
0: 400,000, but there was speculation on the, the sanctity of voter fraud. Of
1: the voter fraud yeah. yeah.
0: And and I wanted to quickly say, too, I the reason I brought up religion is just because you, you had made the comparison to Trump. And obviously, when I when I had read into Francois Duvalier, I definitely saw a lot of parallels. And one of the biggest ones was the way that Duvalier was able to tap into the uh, religious fanaticism that is within everyday common people as well as those uh, who are in in power, right? Because religion is one thing that is shared throughout people, whether it be people who are poor, people who are rich, religion is often shared and Trump was able to do the same thing here in modern times in forms of tapping into the Christian evangelical market which is a very powerful political uh, force here in the United States.
1: No, and that that term cult of personality gets very tied in to what the Duvier is going to be attempting to set up here. And that ties in a lot with religion and other cultural aspects. What you see that with people like Stalin, even though it's an absence of religion, it's very tied into cultural patriotism. Um, You have a lot of other examples of cult of personality or even just cult of uh, like it becomes a dynastic cult, whether it's uh, the the family in North Korea, like the Kim family.
0: Now, is there anything else in particular, because I know that you wanted to get more towards modern-day Haiti, is there anything else in particular you wanted to uh, bring up about the Duvalier regime?
1: Oh, no, there's a little bit that we can talk about here. Part of what I was going to bring up is that uh, as part of that cult of personality, in 1964, he declares himself president for life, um, you know, he was popular initially. I, I don't think he would have necessarily had to do that, but because of the way the constitution and their government is set up, he declares himself that to not have to worry about it anymore. He ties his cult of personality in to uh, a figure known as uh, Baron Samedi from Haitian voodoo. He is seen as one of the uh, Eoa, Eoa or Loa, however you want to pronounce it. I'm not too, too sure on that, um, but he's seen as like a, almost like a spirit of the dead. Or, or other connected to these other incantations of, of the baron figure. And if you've ever seen a lot of different fantasy stuff, he's um, he's usually depicted as wearing like a tall top hat, along with like face painting of like a skull and that kind of thing. Um, so he's definitely one of those figures that ends up making it, but he got tied in a lot to the ideal of this cult of personality. And uh, not only was Samidi one of these figures who was popular, but you had Duvier basically trying to dress like him and trying to talk like him. And I think Duvier wanted people to think that he had control over the dead and had control over this black magic, and that tied into it.
0: Well, there was even a point where Duvier had used the uh, John F. Kennedy assassination to his ploy. He had basically claimed that he had done a, a practice that was the main reason why John F. Kennedy had been assassinated, correct? Correct.
1: And Duvier is one of those interesting dudes because like he is smart, right? Like one of the things that he sees is he does not trust the army at all even though he has military support at first. But if you look at all the coups that had happened before him why would you trust the army, right? Like they're they're your first fucking threat other than like the, the other if anything they're more dangerous than your political threats, right? Correct, yeah.
0: Because they're the ones who have the guns and
1: actually have the power. Yeah, and they, and they can take and put people into power left and right. We've seen that already. Um, so what he, he does is he de- he disbands the army and he creates his own private militia or a special operations unit, like a paramilitary force. Uh, he creates them in 1959. Um, they were basically known as the uh, Tan Tan uh, Makute or makut, um sometimes just called the makut, Uh They were basically named after a Haitian boogeyman who is called Uncle Gunny Sack, who would carry, like, bad children away and that kind of thing, um, and then eat them for breakfast. And so he's naming his police force after, like, the people who come and snatch you in the night. And and so there was this July 1958, there was an attempted coup against Duvier. He's like, hey, fuck this. I'm taking away the army and the law enforcement, but I'm going to put in people... Were probably even more dangerous and only answer to me. Um, they're responsible for an unknown number of murders and rapes. People would be disappeared overnight or even attacked in broad daylight. Um, they were accused of even stoning people and burning them alive. They would put people on display after that as warnings to opposition. Um, any family member who spoke up or even tried to move the body would disappear. Uh, There's a guy named Cambrone, uh, Cambroni, or Cambrone who would lead them in the sixties and seventies, he would be known later as the vampire of the Caribbean. Um, cause he would take blood plasma from people and then sell them, uh, sell it. And so it's just a, a fucked up situation overall, the educated and the professional class are basically fleeing at this point. They see the corruption that's going on. They see the horrible death squads that are going on. They see all this kind of shit. They're like, Hey, we're out. We're getting out of here. So, this, this poverty and this corruption in government are tied together, right? The, the more corrupt your government, the, less, the more of a brain drain you're gonna essentially have. And so you have this, this horrible cycle of poverty and corruption that keeps on reinforcing itself. But one of the ways that Duvier, in addition to that cult of personality, he's able to stay in power because he gets a lot of support from the United States. He's a firm anti-communist in the time of the Cold War um he's not going to be a castro he's not going to be um you know any kind of leftist threat to the united states so that trumps his abuses that makes it so that he can stay in power stuff like the jeremy uprising is violently suppressed uh, mixed race citizens are killed like i was talking about they're leaving on mass because of that and corruption but he's still getting us aid and support because of his anti-communist ties and in the cold war episodes that we talked about You'll understand much more of, of why that was happening. If you've listened up to this point, you understand the background on that. Um, he dies in 1971, but his son, Jean-Claude, takes over. He's known as Baby Doc. He he continues his father's policies, but he curbs some of the excesses to try to get some respectability, both internationally and at home. And he wants to bring tourism back. And he knows the way to do that is to you know calm things down a little bit. Like I had talked about before, though, that massive brain drain after the intimidation and the killings makes it so that the country's decline and his loss in power are almost simultaneous. You have a swine fever outbreak. You have a papal visit by John Paul III, or John Paul, I can't remember, John Paul II or third. the guy who was Pope for most of my lifetime. Um, he comes and he actually rebukes Duvier by name. There's There's massive demonstrations. Um, there's eventually pressure from both the United States and France for him to resign. And he leaves for France in February of 1986. All in all, Hirsch, it's talked about, there was maybe between 40,000 and 60,000 people killed during the reign of the Duvier dynasty. Um, That number is probably on the higher side or maybe underestimated because you never know. And it's believed that for Jean-Claude, both between him and his wife, they took some $500 million from the Haitian treasury. And so those are roads, those are schools, that's drinking water that people just took. All under the support of the United States, man. I ask. Yeah, just because they were anti-communist, you look the other way. Yep. And so we
0: have...
1: Yeah, it's a reoccurring theme, right? It's it's that's why I talked about it at the beginning. Like I, I thought Haiti was gonna stand out because it wasn't the same. And if anything, it stands out because it's a lot more similar than I ever gave it credit for. And it, it kinda highlights the the most horrible versions of what we were talking about. And yeah, that stuff about Duvier claiming that he put a curse on Kennedy with that kind of stuff, like I don't know. Dude is a very interesting figure. I didn't know if he had anything else before we moved on.
0: No, I think I think that's fine. We can move more towards the uh, the modern era, because I know yeah. that you have a few things you wanted to bring up about that.
1: Yeah, no, and, and Duvier didn't like Kennedy because Kennedy had the gall to speak out against his regime. And yeah, I just I think Duvier is one of those figures in history that like I said, I I hate to compare him because it, it's beat over the head, but he's definitely like on that Trump level of like it's just amazing to watch sometimes.
0: Well, I, and actually, you know what? I do want to quickly say that I think Del Valle uh, is somebody who's brought up often um, in certain leftist movements, and the understanding of uh, just exactly who you idolize. I mean, somebody that I've always um, looked up to in a lot of um, a lot of ways. Fred Hampton had always kind of used. Duvalier is an example of understanding that just because somebody claims that they are for the people, it doesn't mean that they actually are for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, he was somebody that used the blame of the Creole and the white population, um, as well as populism and religion, uh, religious fanaticism, to gain and assert power. And it's important to to stay away from the ideas of cult of personality, as my brother said. Sorry, yeah, I just it, wanted to quickly add. No, that. No,
1: it, it's false prophets, right?
0: Correct. essentially exactly. what
1: you're talking about. And I, I think I, it's not necessarily that I have a lot to talk about in this last segment. I know we only have like probably like 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes left. Um, but the pattern that we're going to see in the post-Duvier era and then leading up to the present, I think, um, is going to tie in to what we're going to kind of talk about in the next episode where we're talking about this pattern throughout history that's kind of happening. And one of the numbers I wanted to throw out there before we get into anything too specific is with the number with the ones that we've already heard about and the ones we're going to talk about or maybe not even be able to mention because there have been so many. There have been 32 co- total coup d'etats in, in Haiti in it since its independence. And it blows you, it blows your mind because there's been some that have occurred in the same year in Haiti Um We'll talk about a lot of them coming up here pretty shortly in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, in 1988, for example, there's two alone. Um, so this is a very unstable country. And again, I, wanna, I want people to keep in mind, uh, keep on asking yourself why from the stuff that we've seen before. Is, was Haiti ever even given a chance to succeed, I guess, is the question I want to ask, you know? And I don't know if there's an answer for that, but it's just something to keep in mind. And as we're getting into that new era, we're going to see a lot of political and economic instability. We're going to see the U.S. make another appearance and try to to stabilize things. Um, But basically, we're going to see a background of coups, um, excuse me, of disasters, coups, and assassinations that lead into our current era here. And, and Hirsch, was there anything that stood out to you in the last, you know, I guess it's almost what, uh, almost, 35, 40 years of Haitian of history that you wanted to make sure you got brought up before I started? Well, brother, I just
0: wanted to bring up the Clean Foundation. No, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think you kind of encapsulated just my overall thoughts and, and my intrigues um, when it comes to Haiti. Is just the fact that whether it was political, financial uh, instability or just natural disasters is... Uh, Haiti has definitely for lack of better term has gotten the short end of the stick in a lot of ways. And, um, it's just very intriguing to me to understand, especially because anybody who had been paying attention recently understands what had been happening in Haiti. I won't say much cause I'll let you get into it. But, uh, that, that's one thing that stuck out to me.
1: No, absolutely. And stop me if I'm going too fast, or if you think I should mention something again, or if you want to go into more detail, but I'm going to kind of go through an overview here of, uh, The more recent events that we're going to talk about, so we're talking about that continued political and economic instability. You have the National Governing Council, which was a group set up to take power after uh, Baby uh, Baby Doc leaves, and there's supposed to be uh, elections coming up in November of 1987. But soldiers of the Tonton, of you know the Boogeyman group, they end up killing civilians. Elections get delayed. There are fraudulent elections that happened in 1988, where only roughly 4% of the country even votes. Um, That new president is then overthrown in a June 1988 coup, Um, Maniga, He had won that military-controlled election, but he is then overthrown in another coup d'etat. Then later in September, the one who had um, overthrown the last guy is then overthrown himself, where you have another coup d'etat in that same year. That leads up also to another event in September of that year called the St. Jean Bosco Massacre where at least 13 people, a lot of people aren't for sure, there's at least 80 wounded, um, where a church was attacked under the direction of Jean Bertrand Aristide, who was a liberation theology Roman Catholic, and what's kind of cool about liberation theology is it's a view of what basically the Catholic church was like in the civil rights movement, or at least members of the Catholic church, excuse me, where they believe that, you know, um, people should be more equal. There should be less, uh, poverty. People should be able to have healthcare, you know, basic kind of shit. Um, so Aristide is is seen as a threat and people are packed in there for Sunday mass. Uh, Aristide had been, had survived at least six attempts on his life. Um, He is able to live through this, but again, unfortunately, a lot of the people who were there were either injured or killed. Um, It was probably the Makute who had taken out on this, most likely because they had done a lot of this kind of stuff before. You have that event going on. You have a military regime who basically takes power until 1990. In 1990, though, Jean-Baptiste Aristide does win election. He has an ambitious reform agenda um, like I mentioned before, he's actually a he's a social Democrat. He actually does believe in, in some true um, somewhat leftist ideals that really worries the elites. It makes them piss their pants just like anything else. You know, anything from the left scares the shit out of them. So again, in 1991, there's another military coup. Uh, many attempt to flee the country at this time, too, because, you know, there's this chaos. Hey, we think we're all done with this kind of stuff. Um, that leads to what became known as the Haitian refugee crisis, where you had a huge influx of Haitian refugees into into Florida, um, into other parts of the United States, where that diaspora of Haitians continues. You have what's called Operation Uphold Democracy, where um, this is where I believe uh, Clinton comes into into effect, right, Hirsch? Yes. Yeah. This is probably what you're you're getting at. Operational pull democracy where you have the United States sending in its military, trying to stabilize the situation, trying to get a return to democracy, acting as a peacekeeping force. Um, Clinton loved to do this kind of stuff in the 90s. He was uh, under the impression um, with other people who were around him and his um, secretary of state, whether it was his other advisors. There's a guy I'm trying to think of. I think his name... Uh, I'm blanking on it. He, pa- I think he passed away not too long ago, but he was really heavily involved in like the overall Clinton view of the world and about using military force for, you know, the, uh, these nation building kind of things or these protection kind of things and kind of learning a lesson they felt from Rwanda when they didn't step in where they thought they had to. And the United States decides to step in and and take over um, things w- you know, to try to, to help restore the Aristide regime. There's, uh, I think, 20,000 troops, Hirsch is what I saw.
0: Um, that's about the estimates that I had seen as well.
1: But the main thing to keep in mind is, of course, it's all about economics, right? Part of the deal is is that there are going to be free market reforms. They tell Aristide, if you're going to come back to power, you can't have your socialist bullshit. You need to have the free market takeover. And you need to make sure that these free market reforms are put into place. So you have this continued neoliberal um, international diplomacy. And we're going to talk about that more in our wrap up episode where I bring up the IMF, the World Bank and all that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, these free market reforms have mixed results at best. Um, It does lead to more turmoil eventually. Um, There's that consistent background of political turmoil, um, environmental stuff going on and disasters. And before I moved on, Hurst, was there anything you wanted to bring up about Operation Uphold Democracy? You gotta love the name too. Operation Uphold Democracy. Uphold
0: democracy. Well, not even just the name, but the whole the whole notion that you hear any president, regardless if they're quote Democrat or Republican. Um, anytime that you hear the, the words come out, you know, we need to return this nation to democracy almost nine times out of 10, what they're really saying is that we need to return corporate structure and corporate control in this region. And which just so happens to be a corporation that's underneath our control and under U.S. government stipulation. So that's just one thing that I wanted to kind of quickly bring up.
1: Absolutely. And Erested is made president again from 94 until ninety six. He'll again be elected later on from 2001, 2004. He will also be again taken out in another coup in 2004. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, Part of what you see though, and I'm just going to kind of talk about this in a row, and, and it's hard to separate from the rest of what's going on though. In the background, you have these constant environmental disasters that Haiti is hit with over and over again, but you also have massive deforestation which hasn't helped with anything because then you see floods, erosions, and rising car- carbon rates because there's less, um, there's less forest to deal with these kinds of things. In 1994, you have Hurricane Gordon and the mudslides, which killed between uh, 1,000 and 2,000 people. Um, 2004, you have Tropical Storm Jean, which kills 3,000. 2008, you have Tropical Storm Fay, Hurricanes Gustav, Hannah, and Ike all in the same year at least 300 deaths, high food and gas prices. You have a food crisis and political unrest that breaks out because of that. And then most famously, probably we all have seen the photos of Sean Penn and Wyclef yelling at each other. Um, You have the 2010 earthquake. Um, It was the most severe earthquake in Haiti in 200 years. You have between 220 and 300,000 people dead and 1.6 million people left homeless. You also had drinking water getting affected You also had infrastructure getting affected for a country that didn't have resources for this kind of thing to begin with. Um, To kind of add injury to insult, at this time, there's a UN station that is supposedly trying to help out with the Haitian um, situation that's going on. But what you eventually have is an outbreak of cholera because the UN station leaks cholera infected waste into the main river that's in that region, I believe it's called the Arbite or the Arbiter, Um, the UN has refused to take responsibility. You then have Hurricane Matthew in 2016, which is the costliest hurricane in Haiti's history, at least $2.8 billion in damage with 546 deaths. And then just this year in August, you had another earthquake of a 7.2 magnitude, which killed over 2,000 people and cost over a billion dollars in damage. And so it's just one thing after the other, like, between the environmental stuff, the economic stuff, the disasters, like, the people of Haiti just get hit one thing after the other. And then you have the UN coming in to help, and they give everybody fucking cholera.
0: Jesus. Yeah. Fucking no good deed goes unpunished, as they say.
1: You know? And, like... Yeah, the UN stabilization mission that I mentioned before, it was given like the abbreviation M-I-N-U-S-T-A-H. And that they were brought in to stabilize and maintain order, as I'll talk about here pretty soon. Uh, You'll see the reason why. Um, Pretty much what I'm going to be talking about now is just some sad history about coups and assassinations. And keep in mind the backdrop of all these disasters, all this other unrest and all the other economic stuff going on as well. Um, the army is disbanded in 1995, mainly because you have groups like the fucking boogeymen who are taking people in the night and that kind of thing. So the Haitian national police become the sole power of authority in the country. That leads to even more corruption, even more abuse. So what they were trying to do originally ends up kind of backfiring because you have more control in a national police force who's getting more and more power. You have a guy in 1995, Praval, who wins an election with 88% of the vote, even though there's low turnout. Um, you got to wonder anytime you see 88% if people even were able to participate fully, that kind of stuff. Um, Aristed forms his own party since he had gotten defeated um, based on social democracy, the Fanmi Lavalas. Um, that's basically um, formed around him, but it's a social democratic party. It's been really active in, in politics since 1991. I believe Um, there was recent elections that they contested because there was a lot of fraud and other stuff going on too. So that kind of stuff has not changed at all, unfortunately. You have in the November 2000 elections, they are then boycotted by the opposition to Aristide, a group called the Convergence Democratique. they think that there's been discrepancies in a previous election that happened that year previously. In that November election, though, our wins with 92% of the vote because the opposition boycotts it. What you have from that point is increasing violence between those two political factions where both sides are attacking each other and committing basically what you consider war crimes against each other, even though it's a, like a low simmering kind of thing. You have the Bush administration accusing our of being involved in drug trafficking. Um, there's some British outlets who accuse him of really operating almost these Ponzi scheme or these pyramid schemes in order to rip off people. But I, I tend to think a lot of that is from, um, neoliberals and capitalists who just don't like his political stuff. And I think they're making up a lot of bullshit, to be honest.
0: Well, it's not hard to believe, especially considering everything that we've seen up to this point.
1: Yeah. And then, like I mentioned before, in February, 2004, you have an anti aristide revolt that leads to another coup against him where he is kidnapped and forced into exile. His wife and other people actually have talked about how they believe that the kidnapping involved U.S. Special Forces, people who were either out of uniform or changed out of uniform. And so that's definitely one of those creepy things that I would not put past the uh, United States being involved.
0: Well, and, and it's something that whether it be uh, propaganda that's used within Haiti itself or just examples throughout history, it's, it's not too uh, far fetched to have the belief that the United States covert operations were taking place to uh, dictate exactly who had power and who would keep it. Mm
1: -hmm. No. And this is that period I was talking about where the UN is brought in to stabilize and maintain order. But they use a really heavy handed approach and they end up abusing some citizens, I think, including a lot of sexual abuse cases, which proved to be controversial. Um, then you have that outbreak, like I had mentioned, of cholera, which is one of the only recent outbreaks of cholera, because usually people are better about that kind of thing. But who fucking cares? Because it's Haiti. That's pretty much how the U.N. was operating. Um Another one of the things that's going on in Haiti that I was reading about is there's massive overpopulation and really horrible conditions in their jails. Not only because the, the infrastructure is just not there and the money is just not there, but you have like up to 80 inmates who are forced in like these 20 by 20 rooms where they have to, to sleep around each other and, and diseases are just spreading. It sounded terrible. And so there's just all this human rights violation kind of stuff going on too, while the elites of that country keep on making money over and over and over again. A, a guy named uh, Alexander assumes the presidency until new elections can come in, where Rene Preval, a former president, is elected once again. But that election itself was delayed four times, either because of um, disasters that are going on or violence that's breaking out. What you can consider the post uh era and leading up to the present, you have continued, continued disasters, like I mentioned before, where they just get hit one time after another. Elections in January of 2010 are postponed because of the earthquake. Um, in 2010 elections, there's a guy, um, Martelli, who wins a runoff. In 2011, both Duvalier, um, the younger Duvalier, and Aristide return from exile, respectively. Um, in 2014, baby Doc passes away before he is able to be held responsible for any kind of crimes or, or put on trial. In 2013, Haiti and its government calls for Europe to pay reparations for slavery and maybe pay back some of that money that, you know, they made them pay for no fucking reason. But again, corruption rears its ugly head where Martelli is forced to step down in 2016 with no successor after allegations of fraud and another interim president takes office. Again, elections are delayed by another hurricane, Matthew, um, but they are eventually held in November where you have a gentleman named Jovenel Moise or Moise, I don't know how that's pronounced for sure, wins the presidency and takes over in 2017. His regime proves pretty quickly unpopular. At first, what happens as a um, revolt or protest against increased fuel prices evolves into calls for Moise to resign. Those protests continued through the pandemic It actually got pretty intense where like hundreds were demonstrating. There was a lot of people. um, There's a lot of stuff that was just spreading around. You know, these problems are social, economic, political. There's not just one solution. Part of what's happening is, you know, just the unrest that we were feeling here during the pandemic, I imagine was spreading, uh, spreading around there too. In July of this year, on July 7th of 2021, Moise is assassinated in uh, his own private residency. Uh, The First Lady is also shot multiple times where she's uh, taken later for treatment. Police eventually killed three of the suspected assassins and arrested 20 more. There's a manhunt going on for the other five gunmen. I think that's one of those things maybe we'll talk about a little bit more in our our next episode about what's currently going on because there's a lot of background on that, and I want to look more into it, so I'm not talking out of turn. If that makes any sense,
0: no, for sure. And there's and there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the background. Um, there's something specific about this era or this this movement, rather, um, one of which being a former police chief who is basically turned into a uh, street crime lord uh, who's responsible for a lot of the violence and intimidation tactics that are currently taking place. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely want to do that in the in the next episode. Uh, for yeah, we'll,
1: we'll definitely send spend like a good 10 or 15 minutes talking about like, you know, the most recent stuff that's been happening in Latin America. That's definitely something we're going to talk about a little bit more in depth. Um, there's a prime minister who ends up being the acting presidency president, but that's disputed by the Senate leader. People are calling for the U.S. to intervene again, just like they did in the 90s, just like they did before to protect stability and, you know, protect infrastructure, all the usual shit. Um, in July of 2021, on July 19th, that leader who had taken over before Joseph passes power to a gentleman named Ariel Henri, who may be linked with some of those suspects who are involved in that assassination. And so that's why I, I do want to talk more about what's going on. And of course, then in August of this year, we had that other massive earthquake. And so it just, It's just one thing after the other for poor Haiti, but I did want to mention again, just how it ties into those themes that we talked about before, but also how it's different and how it's unique. And I I think, I think both ways of looking at it are are valid and, and interesting.
0: No, for sure. And I think overall too, I think that Haiti is a great episode to kind of highlight the continuing trend that's happened throughout history where, America kind of helps uh, cause a lot of this devastation and deviation of power, whether it be financial, social, or political, um, only to later on come in and become the great white hero and, you know, be be Superman or, um, or a Marvel character and to create that PR and that uh, the, the propaganda that is known as Western media. I think it's important to highlight and it's something to keep in mind specifically, you know, you can start uh, with open fingers and, and with a little bit more um, knowledge that's more readily available um, with the Clinton Foundation. But obviously it goes a lot further back, all the way into the uh, late 1700s, all the way um, specifically into the United States official occupation of the uh, early 20th century, and and again, I, I think that it's important to keep these sort of things in mind because, as we've stated before, um, a lot of these episodes we will bring up U.S. intervention in the way that the United States plays a role, but we want it to be very well clear that it is not just the United States that is responsible for a lot of these things overall. It is just a very imperialistic and fascist type ideology that is responsible for a lot of the, the death, destruction, and overall manipulation of those who are poor and working.
1: Well, it tends to be the elites of these countries working hand in hand with, the, with those other groups that we talked about before. And I think Haiti is another example of, of the many things that we've talked about in this series. And I, I think Haiti was a great way to wrap it up because I think it does put a nice end cap on, on that unique history, but also that pattern that we saw throughout the entire series that we did. And I'm glad we got to finish with it
0: for sure. And, and, and again, too, I think uh, one thing that stuck out to me about this episode, right. is it, as you had mentioned before, um, I believe the name was uh, Operation Uphold Democracy and, um, I I think the reason why we see Haiti kind of get the, as I had said before, the short end of the stick is that um, Western powers in specific want to make sure that Haiti is used as an example. And just my opinion, the way that I look at it is you motherfuckers were able to revolt and to have a slave revolt that eventually led to your nation being founded. We're going to make sure that nobody ever tries to do that because they're going to see what the fuck happens when you do revolt and do uh, sort of uh, have access to your own created power, and, and no, in my personal opinion. No,
1: and even if it's not a conscious thing or even if it's not a continued mindset, that's definitely a factor that has to fit in when, it, when you're talking about a colonial, when you're talking about a master mindset of how you view a country, of how you view a people. So I, I definitely think that's a great way to, to kind of put things in focus right at the end. And there, there's stuff we're going to come back to, especially about the revolution, about those maroon communities, and then later about the, the current stuff with the assassination that happened. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to talking about it more, but I thought that's a, a great way to end our, our overview and our deep dives. And then our next Latin America episode will be the wrap-up episode where we'll talk mm-hmm. about more current stuff or maybe there's the themes that we want to talk about or if you have any questions you'd like to send in about stuff you either wanted to know more about or just stuff you wanted to bring up with us uh, as you listen along with us.
0: For sure. And I, and I definitely think that the wrap up episode will be a great way to, um, show exactly what the what the current situation is for all the countries that we've covered, and to to get a further understanding. Because at the end of the day, a lot of talking heads and a lot of talking points revolve around uh, throwing around different countries that we've talked about, uh, throwing their name in the hat and saying, "Well, this is never going to work because look what happened with so and so." And I think that um, one thing we we can pride ourselves on is the fact of highlighting that. A lot of these countries that are used as examples are not really examples because they've been tampered with and that they have been distorted so much and whitewashed throughout uh, history as we know it here in the United
1: States. Well, they are examples of a different argument, right? They, they are examples of, of failed democracy, but that's because we let democracy fail or we made sure that democracy failed or we made sure the economy failed. We made sure that leader failed, Um you know, so it is a part of an argument, but it's not the argument that people tend to make. Without a doubt. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to quickly add before we have to wrap it up? Or No, I think that's a good cap to our Latin America series proper. We'll have that wrap-up episode next time. And uh, I appreciate you, Hirsch, giving the opportunity to do this months long project. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, honestly, man, I um, because of you mostly and obviously the the area that we grew up in, history has been something... Um, I've always very much found important. Um, And more importantly, I think the idea of history from a people's perspective is something that rings more true to me and that I'm more interested in. And I'm thankful for you to be able to do this podcast because there's not that many people – Um, that are willing to talk about this or at least who function under the same ideological principles of, you know, empathy and compassion and camaraderie with the working and poor class. Absolutely. Um, Same here. On behalf of my brother and I, thank you to everybody listening. Make sure that you like, share and listen. And until next time, wash your hands and wipe your butt. Peace.